On Being is brought to you by the John Templeton Foundation, harnessing the power of the sciences to explore the deepest and most perplexing questions facing humankind. Learn how their grantees are helping to address the coronavirus crisis at templeton.org. Angel Kyoto Williams is one of our wisest voices on social evolution and the spiritual aspect of social healing. And for those of us who are not monastics, she says, the world is our field of practice. She's an esteemed Zen priest and the second black woman recognized as a teacher in the Japanese Zen lineage. To sink into conversation with her is to imagine and experience a transformative potential of this moment towards human wholeness. There is something dying in our society, in our culture, and there's something dying in us individually. And what is dying, I think, is the willingness to be in denial. And that is extraordinary. It's always been happening. And when it happens in enough of us, in a short enough period of time, at the same time, then you have a tipping point and the culture begins to shift. And then what I feel like people are at now is like, no, no, bring it on. I have to face it. We have to face it. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams is the founder of the national organization Transformative Change. And it says something about the enduring nature of wisdom and the generational scope of the change we're in that this conversation happened in 2018. So I'd like to start by asking, you know, this question I I always ask in some form about the religious or spiritual background of someone's childhood. What I think is interesting about it is that on any given day in our lives, I think we might tell that story differently. And also what I was thinking about as I was preparing to speak with you is that the spiritual background of your childhood and the religious background of your childhood can be two completely distinct things. Mm. So So really I'm very open to wherever you would like feel like starting to reflect on that today? I would say that I had no religious life as a child except the life which I would call my spiritual life was a relationship particularly with Jesus Christ through a huge King James version of the Bible, a white one with (laughs) gold edges on the paper and I had a very distinct relationship with Jesus and a kind of affinity for, I guess, what I would now say is his suffering, but no belief. Religion was something that for me was, it just seemed like a thing that people functioned inside of for this very limited period of time. And they seemed very concerned with how they appeared inside of those religious contexts. But outside of them, they were entirely different. They could be anyone doing anything. And so I was quite sensitive Mm. to the disparity, the the real uh, disconnect that I saw between who people were in their religious permutations and who they were. In, in my mind, who they really were, how they really were. Yeah, that's very, I mean, I think that speaks to also what kind of child you were, right? You're, you're perceptive, you're the, what you were observing, um, the level <laughs> at which you were observing. And, you know, also, it seems that you were part of queer culture that was emergent. It seems to me that was just coming to have the nuance, really, that the word is, is holding fully now. Um, 
kind of early on. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've said that 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 experience, as much as anything else, paved your way to the Dharma. Um, yes. Yeah. Say something about that. We were we were at the. Um, so queer was still a bad word as I grew up, right? It was a it was a word that was taunting. Yeah, it was right. And so we were right at that moment in which we were choosing to reclaim our sense of identity, including the language that was meant to turn on us. And so queerness actually opened the doorway to all of us being able to explore our identities and living in the dichotomy that operated as either you were heterosexual or you were this other fixed thing, but there wasn't anything in between. And so what we now understand as a much more expansive spectrum of sexual expression, orientation, presentation, uh, performance, Mm. was opening with that language of, of queerness. And for me, I think that gave me a language and a lens because it was happening at the same time through which to turn the Dharma over, turn my Buddhist practice over and over so that it didn't exist for me as a not this, meaning it was just not Christianity. It was not the uh, Baptist church that I was trying to get away. It wasn't solely that. It was all of these other possibilities and permutations that lived on a a much wider spectrum Mm. than I think many of us that have grown up very firmly in some kind of a religious orientation, then we move or convert to Buddhism and it becomes a new fixation. It becomes a new, right. like, I am this now, right. right? I am not heterosexual. I am lesbian. I am not Jewish. I am now Buddhist. And I lived in a fascinating and wonderful, and I would never trade it, time that said there are spectrums, there are permutations, there are aspects of me that I can continue to claim that are clearly of their Christian background and Baptist upbringing, Um, my Episcopalian time, like I can claim all of it. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't have to uh, diminish any other aspect of my identity. Queerness gave me the language for everything I know about liberation and freedom. Mm. And there's something in the, what you just described and the way you described it that points at um, your voice in in this moment we now inhabit culturally. Um, I'm very taken with this book that you wrote, actually in 2016, Radical Dharma, which I think was a prescient book. Um, mm. It's it's very much about. Uh, what we're living through, but you wrote it kind of in the middle of that election year, um, before that was all done. Um, looking at, as you said then, and I don't, I, I, I don't, I think there's a there's a clarity there's about this now that there wasn't then about this increasing collective anxiety about mm. transitioning from the first black U.S. president. So focusing on that human anxiety that was there and was going to be there whoever had won the election, you make this statement that I, uh, I find so compelling and stark. Um, and this, you know, I just want to delve into this with you. You say, we cannot have a healed society. We cannot have change. We cannot have justice 
if we do not reclaim and repair the human spirit, if we don't do inner work, and as you say in another place, that has been underemphasized, mm-hmm. um, that this is not, we have not trained ourselves to do the work that is upon us now. No, we haven't. Uh, we haven't, and we haven't for good reason from a, a particular perspective to do our work to uh, come into a deep knowing of who we are is, you know, that that's the stuff that bringing down systems of oppression is made of. And so capitalism in its current form couldn't survive. Patriarchy couldn't survive. White supremacy couldn't survive if enough of us said about the work of reclaiming the human spirit, which includes reclaiming the sense of humanity of the people that are the current vehicles for those very forms of oppression. Right. That's such a huge statement. It's hard. (laughs) People always always look at me in this uh, slightly hopeful and (laughs) furtive way. (laughs) Right. So let's talk about that for an hour. <laughs> and I mean, I want to, you know, also you have lived inside this dynamic. Obviously, you are also a product of this culture. And you, you speak very openly about having your angry activist phase, mm. which is more than a phase. I mean, um, an impo- a very important formative part of your life, which is also a formative part of our cultural life. And of our cultural impulse to feel discomfort and leap to change and kind of want to leap over that inner work Mm -hmm. where anger and healing and these things actually reside. (laughs) It's funny, I was just speaking about that uh, to a friend as I was on the way to have this conversation uh, that there is this place of vulnerability from which truly transformative action must come from is what I have discovered and kind of wrapped my whole language and view around is that we can take action and we can take very skillful action. You know, don't get me wrong in any way. There's an enormous amount of advocacy being done, uh, very hard choices that people are making to put themselves on the front lines. Uh, But without this particular place and location of a willingness to be flexible, open, soft-bellied enough to be moved by the truth of the other in whatever given situation, then it is not transformative. It's change, maybe. Mm -hmm. It could be moved backwards again, as we can see, the stroke of a pen. But for us to transform as a society, we have to allow ourselves to be transformed as individuals. And for us to be transformed as individuals, we have to allow for the incompleteness of any of our truths and a real forgiveness for the complexity of human beings and what we're trapped inside of so that we're both able to respond to you know the oppression the you know the aggression that we're confronted with but 
we're able to do that with a deep and abiding sense of, and there are people, human beings, that are at the other end of that baton, that stick, that uh, policy, that are also trapped in something. Mm -hmm. They're also trapped in a suffering. And for sure, we can witness that there are ways in which they're benefiting from it. But there's also ways, if one trusts the human heart, that they must be suffering. And holding that at the core of who, who you are when responding to things, I think is the, way that, the only way we really have forward to not just replicate systems of oppression for the sake of our own cause. Yeah. Which, that, that kind of discernment is also about knowing ourselves, uncomfortably mm-hmm. knowing ourselves. Well, I, I think it's uncomfortably... It's actually uncomfortably unknowing ourselves, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it is this willingness to like keep being willing to come undone, to do what we can to understand the world around us and how it, we operate and what is impacting who we are and how we are, and to allow that to keep coming undone. That's what I think is really the, the paradox in what is possible in from a liberatory standpoint is to recognize like, oh, we're not trying to become something. We're, we're trying to un, yeah, unbecome. Right. We're trying to undo ourselves. And, and that is really what is most challenging for us because we, we want to be known to ourselves. We want to be known to others. But the moment we try to do that, we're actually fixating in a way that traps us. So we feel both safe, but it's also confining. Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with Zen priest and social visionary Angel Kyoto Williams. One of the words you used when you were writing in 2016 about what this moment requires of us is that it calls for pause. And you come from a tradition, a spiritual tradition, which, which has sitting at its core, mm-hmm. right? And you, and you, so we sit and we feel. I want you to unfold that a little bit because this thing we're talking about, it's so countercultural. It, it, it can mm. so easily sound like this is about not being relevant and not attending to what is urgent. But sitting as you and what happens in sitting and in pausing is not about not acting. <laughs> right. It's a different move. So just just like take us inside that. Yeah, I love that. It's a different it's a different move. Um there is so much momentum to every aspect of what drives us, what moves us, what has us hurling through space including all of our thoughts and even our own sense of our emotions, how we interpret any given feeling, any experience of discomfort, where that discomfort sits in our bodies. It's not just that we have a feeling of pain or awkwardness. It's that we then interpret that. And those interpretations 
much to our chagrin, we come to understand through a process of observing them, are not clean or not uh, free of all of the things that are impacting us outside. And so even our sense of what pains us and what makes us um, feel shame, feel guilt, feel awkwardness, feel put upon by people, feel disempowered, has to do with the external information and cues that we have received. And they're moving at an incredible rate of speed. And for the most part, we almost never get the opportunity to observe them and sort through them, kind of like that drawer that collects everything in your house. (laughs) I have a few of those. Yeah, where you say, oh, but wait a minute. Yeah. Someone lived in this house before me, in essence. And some of that stuff is not mine. Mm. Actually, this is not mine. That's my mom's. This is not mine. That's the inheritance of white supremacy, or that's the inheritance of generations of oppression and marginalization that subjects me to habitually feeling less than, even if the current situation has no intent to make me feel that way. And we have no real way of being able to discern what is mine, what is yours, what are we holding collectively, what have I inherited, what have I taken on um, as a measure of protection of a way to cope at some point in my life or past lives that I no longer need. And sitting lets us begin to do that. It doesn't do it right away because what we first are confronted with is just the assault of the amount of thoughts and the mixed messages that just inhabit our body Mm -hmm. and our mind and our experience on an ongoing basis. That when we sit, the first thing we're met with is not quiet or calm or peace. The first thing we're met with is, oh, my God, who is in here And why won't they shut up? (laughs) How do I get them to stop? And not only is something and someone and everyone speaking to me, it's mixed messages. You know, things don't agree with each other. I don't agree with my own truth. I'm having arguments in here that are not my arguments. They're someone else's arguments. They're my parents' arguments. Sitting lets us just, first of all, recognize that we are this a massive collection of thoughts and experiences and sensations that are moving at the speed of light and that we never get a chance to just be still and pause and look at them just for what they are. And then slowly to sort out our own voice from the rest of the thoughts, emotions, interpretations, the habits, the momentums that are just trying to overwhelm us at any given moment. 
And when I say trying to overwhelm us, that's really a, a key thing to understand because that means that there's an us, there's a core right. and deep right. and abiding us that is being overwhelmed by something that's actually not us. And we, when we become aware of it, we're like, oh, I actually have some choice here. After a short break, more from Angel Kyoto Williams' prophetic conversation with me from 2018. Also, head over to the On Being podcast feed for a companion conversation to this one, the newest half-hour episode of Living the Questions, how Angel Kyoto Williams is keeping her fearlessness alive in this year of pandemic and rupture. Find that at onbeing.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, a conversation about social evolution and the spiritual aspect of social healing with Zen priest and teacher, Angel Kyoto Williams. You are a teacher. You are steeped in this tradition. And yet, I also feel that you feel a calling to open the fruits of this tradition. Um, as you say, you've said, you know, Buddhism, for you, there's no question that it is a religion. But there is also Buddhist psychology. There is also Buddhist philosophy. And these have wisdom to kind of offer up to the world. Um, one of the things, you know, and actually your first book was in 2000, and that's also a wonderful book, um, Being Black. Mm-hmm. It's Zen and the Art of Living with Fearlessness, right? With fearlessness yes. and grace. And yeah. grace, with fearlessness and grace. And, and um, grace. Mm-hmm. Which was saying a lot back then. What? Which was saying? <laughs> which it was yeah. saying? Yeah, it was. A, it was a bold statement. Um, you know, it was. There was something um, really quite challenging in that statement. Uh, uh, living with fearlessness and grace, part or being black, <laughs> or both. <laughs> both. Yeah. Right. That yeah. that that we could uh, that we could do that. That we could live in grace. I I just want to say that I think mm. you know. Black America is not non-monolithic as it is, um, has persisted in an amazing grace throughout the history of this country that is phenomenal. That if any of us were willing to be just a little bit sane (laughs) and look, we would recognize like, oh my goodness, how extraordinary that black people in particular Uh, indigenous people as well, could live the lives of dignity that they have chosen for themselves in the face of the onslaught of what this country's history has been and continues to be uh, and continues to put upon them. So grace, I think, is um, a gift that Mm. black peoples have inhabited for a great deal of time. It's such a wonderful word to call out, too, as you say. Yeah. Yeah. 
and but fearlessness um, is is the really bold statement because we're expected to not be fearless, and in fact, our fearlessness is dangerous and and threatening. And so, having people of African descent, people that identify as black, to choose fearlessness is a very, very <laughs> bold and statement of defiance. And I remember Buddhist teachers being uh, tentatively or sometimes not so tentatively questioning about the idea that in the book I talk about warrior spirit. Yes. And I could see their discomfort with aligning black people with the idea of warriorship. Well, and... In your life, this is—I don't want to call it a line that you straddle—but th- but these are, these are identity. You know, being Buddhist and being black; those two things. I mean, you know, I remember you talk about your first week-long Zen retreat. This, this, you, there you were walking in circles, staring at a gaggle <laughs> of white people's feet. <laughs> um, yes, the things that stand out and stay with us. Yeah, <laughs> and I don't even think you wrote that. It wasn't even as a criticism. It was like, well, here's the reality. This is what I'm seeing. Um, So here is this tradition that has offered so much to 21st century people. It's kind of risen up from thousands of years of cultivating, cultivating this kind of attention and presence. And yet, it, this tradition itself has this very contra- which is I should not be surprising. Should it has this very contradiction at its core? In, in its in its American, in its Western uh, manifestation of having been brought to the West, as we say, imported mm-hmm. mostly by young Jewish people and some Christians who were white, mostly. Um, mm-hmm. What you have some very interesting things to say about how that. How also how white culture affected, I mean, it's like, for example, the focus on meditation, which is, again, yeah. like what the 21st century West knows as a headline um, about Buddhism. And that this, That's in fact, right. is not the primary practice for most of the world's Buddhists, so that it's a non-relational way of developing community, which is more, has more to say about us than about the ancient tradition. Yeah, I think... Um I think two things are happening. I think we are in the West and, yes, primarily white folks, primarily white folks of uh, a level of certain amount of privilege, because one would have to be of a certain amount of privilege to go off to Asia and bring package up, package up teachings and bring them back. And sometimes package of teachers. Yes, that's right. But also, you know, when you talk, and I've spoken with many of them, these wonderful, these these kind of mothers and fathers of Western Buddhism, but they they also will describe this spiritual emptiness that they were uncovering mm-hmm. in what they had that's been right. handed as a life. Sorry, go right. on. Yeah, and that's what I was going to say. Yeah. So they are of some amount of privilege. Um, uh responded to what they needed. Mm-hmm. And so it's not a criticism to say, oh, look, the white people went and, you know, made meditation important when that's not what the rest of the the, the majority of Buddhists are practicing in the world. The, the criticism is not that meditation was made important, but the, 
the the grip on it mm-hmm. and the therefore denial of everything else that might be expressed and generated from these teachings in modern times, in modern society, but through a different cultural lens are set aside as not the real thing, not the true thing, not yeah. the pure thing. What would you name? Um, and, what what for you is in that ecosystem of practices and impulses? Um, well, I, you know, I certainly think that chanting practice, right? Mm. And uh, it's well known that uh, Nichiren uh, Buddhism and uh, what most people are have been familiar with, if they've heard of black people practicing Buddhism, they think of Tina Turner and... Um, and uh, uh, as, as you know, chanting Namo Myo Renge Kyo. Hmm. And that we talk about Buddhism as being largely white, and actually there is an enormous number of people of color uh, in the Soka Gakkai uh, sect. Yeah. But it's dismissed almost to the point of appearing non-existent in our mainstream, as much as Buddhism could be mainstream, <laughs> magazines and media. Mm. We almost never talk about Soka Gakkai, about chanting Buddhists. We even call them chanting Buddhists, mm. Mm. right? That's, as if that's yeah, so a interesting. pivot off of the real thing. So we have chanting Buddhists, and which means that by default, the rest of Buddhists are not chanting Buddhists which is absolutely not true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so that's the um, mashup of dominant culture that has incredible um, impact and a spread in terms of its um, ability to affect the, the world and how the world understands itself and what's important and what's deemed as um, valuable and therefore not valuable. It's a capitalist orientation to even spirituality. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with Zen priest and social visionary Angel Kyoto Williams. Also, talk to you about love. I mean, you right. first got thinking about love with bell hooks. And I have to say, I mean, I think we forget, uh, but we may be remembering that, you know, the great, not just spiritual geniuses, but social reformers have used this L word, right? Love. Mm. And it was. It was absolutely central to the civil rights movement. And I hear this word surfacing everywhere. And mm. also an attention to how we have to how we have to revive it, how we have That's to fill right. it with mm-hmm. connotations that take in the complexity of us and the hardness of what's before us. I mean, you've been thinking about this the role of love in movements. I think for a couple of decades. And I, I wonder how your thought on that, also what you see in the world, is evolving right now. Yeah, I think you were pointing towards it. Um, Bell and reading Bell 
and getting an opportunity to meet Bell also uh, gave me uh, a lens into the possibility of love being something that I could, not only could, I want to say, that I had to bring into the language of my perception of the world and that love was not to be limited to my bedroom or my family, right? right? Just right. people that I um, thought that I liked, that what I was doing in the past and what we often do and where our culture calls us to do is to use love to be a quantifier of um, do I do I have a preference for you? <laughs> right? Yeah, that's really well do, put. Do yeah. I have? Am I aligned and in agreement and affinity? Are you reflecting back at me what I want to be reflected back at me? Mm. Right. And mm-hmm. if you are, and if you're enhancing my <laughs> idea of myself, then I love you. Mm-hmm. And Bell opened up the idea that 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 was a very limited way of understanding, and she still does. So that's a limited way of understanding love. The way that I think of love most often these days is that love is space. And love Say some is more space. about that. What do you mean? It is uh, developing our own capacity for spaciousness within ourselves to allow others to be as they are. That that is love. And that doesn't mean that we don't have hopes or wishes that things are changed or shifted, but that to come from a place of love is to be in acceptance of what is even in the face of moving it towards something that is more whole, more just, more spacious for all of us. Hmm. It's bigness, it's um, allowance, it's flexibility, it's saying the thing that we talked about earlier of like, oh, those police officers are trapped inside of a system as well. They are subject to enormous amount of suffering as well. I think that those things are, you know, missed when we sort of shortcut talking about King or we shortcut talking about Gandhi. We we leave out the aspects of their underlying motivation for moving things um, and we make it about policies and advocacy when really it is about expanding our capacity for love as as a species yeah I, um, I that's so interesting to just focus on that word movement because again if we just take a reality base you don't move people by hating them or criticizing them you mm-hmm. I mean and you don't always move people by loving them but you don't have a chance of doing it doing right. it with the other tools but you know i'm also so thinking so hard at the moment you're right like we don't we haven't even seen this aspect of that history even the history that's not so long ago i sometimes have this feeling that that we are only now growing into with with for many reasons the aspect of consciousness here what you're talking about the the real human work without which those political changes are fragile. Um, yes. How, how are you... Um, I feel that what you're describing and participating in feels like some kind of evolution. I don't know. I mean, just this is, a, this is kind of like taking a very wide lens and going to a mm-hmm. big telescopic level, as um, Maria Popova likes to say. 
um, <laughs> a telescopic lens on the present. But just say a little bit yeah. more about that, because I think that also is calming in its way for us. Uh, we're, we're at this unique time. I'm surprised, actually, that more people aren't talking about it. I think I may have glimpsed an article um, but that I uh, disciplined myself to not read. Um, but we are at a time so incredibly unique in human history where there is a meaningful number of us that are not driven by mere survival and we are not defined by the work that we do or the place from which we come. We are able to be transient. We can move around places. We can create meaning um, out of things and ways of being and work that we choose to do. And we can recreate it over and over again. We're not defined by where we are or what we do. We can make meaning out of it, but we are not defined by it in a way that former cultures and societies that were limited in transportation and had a necessity to, you know, be able to put food on the table. And so we farmed. And so, you know, we mm, did a, yeah. a whole bunch of things that were about fundamental necessities. You just and inherited now, identities from... All and their kinds of identities that's, from that's exactly right, which is yeah. part of our great yeah. conflict in this country right now, right? We, yeah. we have we are running into the conflict between people that inhabit an inherited identity with the place that they are, mm -hmm. coal mining country, right, mm -hmm. and the work that they do as a result of the place that they are, up against people that have values and ways of perceiving the world that have shifted because they're not. Yeah identified by their place and and the work that they do in the same way that location and, and uh, a fixed place tells yeah. you who you are and how you be in the world. And that conflict and the values that come from the those two disparate locations is the conflict that we're up against right now in this country in particular, but also in places, other places over, in the yeah, world. It's global. Yeah. yeah. We are in this amazing um, moment of evolving where the values of some of us are evolving at rates that are faster than can be taken in and integrated right. for peoples that are oriented by place right, and the work that they've inherited yeah, as a and result who are in of the, where they are. Who are constantly, who are in survival mode and who are in survival mode right. as a result as right. a result of that and so our values and what become what's acceptable to us enough of us is shifting at a pace that is just outside of some of our ability to even take in mm -hmm. And the, the problem is, that, I mean, that's always been true, but the problem is now we have a meaningful number, a sub substantive number of people that have those rapidly evolving values in confrontation with people that are understandably still working with the location survival-based orientation this means a lot of things for us. This means that in terms of values, we can be more spacious. 
right? There are many of us that can afford literally to be okay with people that are really, really different. In fact, we can be curious about it because our sense of threat is diminished because our identity is not prescribed by sameness and being afforded belonging because of sameness. Yeah. Our own identities have evolved in such a way that because we're not merely trying to survive, I'm not saying we're not trying to pay our rent and everything, but because we're not identified with merely trying to survive, our sense of survival, our sense of thriving is embedded in a sense of movement and spaciousness and increasing allowance for more and more difference that is in direct conflict with people that are in a space-time continuum that is still place-based, survival-based, get-food-on-the-table-based. Mm -hmm. If I don't cut off the top of this mountain, where will I go? If those people are not beneath me, how will I know my own value, et cetera, et cetera. You sometimes do an exercise. We did this in your TEDx talk where you where you have, you know, you've got a room full of people and you just you have them stand up and it's 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 about it's about placing your, you know, a hand on the side of someone's shoulder and creating mm-hmm. pressure and I think feeling embodied but also feeling the space around you and feeling the other people around. I'm kind of longing and we, and we don't have time to do that, but I'm kind of longing mm-hmm. for to end with you just offering some ways for people to begin. There's this wonderful notion that runs all the way through your recent writing that, you know, the world, for people who are not monastics, the world is our field of practice. That's right. Yeah. Our teachers, as much as we love our embodied teachers that come in flesh and bone and sit on cushions, are really the people the situations that we confront moment to moment, day to day, month to month, year to year, that incite a sense of discomfort, dis-ease, <laughs> awkwardness in us. And rather than seeing those moments as threats to who we are, if we could reorient, if we could center in our relationship to ourselves as evolving, fluid, ever-expansive creatures whose role is to be in observation of what is that? What has that inspired? What has that called forth in me, that discomfort, that is speaking to something that feels solid and fixed and is now challenged in its location. If we could do that, if we could live our lives in a way in which we understand that our deepest learning, our deepest capacity for growth comes not from walling ourselves off from the things that make us feel a sense of threat or discomfort or out of alignment or out of sorts, but rather figuring out what it is speaking to us when we feel those things and what do we have to learn from that teacher that is embodied in that situation, that moment. 
not so that we become something different than who we are, but that we're evolving into a greater and greater sense of what it means to be fully human, to be radically, completely in the truth of the human experience and all of its complexities. I think that if we can move our work, whatever work we're up to, whatever kind of um, desire that we have for our own development in life, to be willing to face discomfort and receive it as opportunity for growth and expansion and a commentary about what is now more available to us rather than what it is that is limiting us Hmm. and taking something away from us, that we will, in no time at all, we will be a society that enhances the lives of all our species. We will be in a society that thrives and knows that the planet must thrive with us. We'll be in a society that knows that No one that is suffering serves the greater community and that no one that is suffering is not an indicator of the ways in which the society itself is suffering. I like that faith of in no time at all. In no time at all. I'm impressed with that. (laughs) (laughs) In no time at all. (laughs) You mean that? I I really do. I think we have... um, we are evolving at such a pace. E- even what we're experiencing now in our society, we're we're just cycling through it. You know, we're mm-hmm, digesting mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the material of the misalignment. We're digesting the material of how intolerable it is to be so intolerant. Mm. We're digesting the material of 400, 500 years of historical context that we have decided to leave in behind our heads and we are choosing to turn our sh- over our shoulders and say, I must face this yeah. because it is intolerable to live in any other way than a way that, that allows me to be in contact with my full loving human self. Mm-hmm. You know, I felt very like you as just because of what I pay attention to as we walk through 2016, I, I felt like this human drama is what Mm. we have to grapple with when this is over and it doesn't, it's going to be there whoever wins. And then I felt a lot of resistance to that awareness, (laughs) you know, in the, in the, in the last year. Um, like everybody kind of, a lot of people, you know, all around kind of digging down into the trenches, but now I'm suddenly feeling like, ah, there's there's some I mean there's something you you said right after the election of 2016 I think it was lion's roar you said I don't have a lot of words but I have a lot of faith I know the road feels low and winding and we seem to need the pain to cut to the core to emerge from the sleepwalk of despair and feel through the numbness of disconnect and indifference but if we let ourselves feel this we will be better for it and I I'm kind of now feeling bad about my I'm feeling like I was impatient because this is it's just to let yourself feel is mm-hmm. is hard it's it's a lot to ask and I do kind of feel like that is emerging I, I don't I'm yeah. just wondering if you also have that sense yeah absolutely <laughs> I and and it's and it's part of it right it is part of it it's part of it to go through the fits and you know the denial it's a there's a death right happening. right 
right? There is something dying in our society, in our culture, and there's something dying in us individually. And what is dying, I think, is the, the, the willingness to be in denial. And that mm, is extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The willingness to be in denial is dying in a meaningful number of us at, you know, the tipping point, right? It's like, it's always been happening. And when it happens in enough of us, in a short enough period of time at the same time, then you have a tipping point and the culture begins to shift. Yeah. And then what I feel like people are at now is like, no, no, bring it on. I have to face it. Yeah. We yeah. have to face it. We have to face it. I also think what people know is that, you know, short of a nuclear war, we'll survive it. Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams is founder of the national organization Transformative Change. She's the author of Being Black, Zen and the Art of Living with Fearlessness and Grace, and Radical Dharma, Talking Race, Love, and Liberation. Also, head over to the On Being podcast feed for a companion conversation to this one, the newest half-hour episode of Living the Questions. How Angel Kyoto Williams is keeping her fearlessness alive in this year of pandemic and rupture. Find that at onbeing.org or wherever you get your podcasts. The On Being Project is located on Dakota land. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice that you hear singing at the end of our show is Cameron Kinghorn. On Being is an independent, nonprofit production of the On Being Project. It is distributed to public radio stations by WNYC Studios. I created this show at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, dedicated to reconnecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. Supporting organizations and initiatives that uphold a sacred relationship with life on Earth. Learn more at Calliopeia.org. Humanity United, advancing human dignity at home and around the world. Find out more at humanityunited.org, part of the Omidyar Group, the George Family Foundation, in support of the Civil Conversations Project, the Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives, and the Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. On being... Is produced by On Being Studios in Minneapolis, Minnesota.